welcome to the inaugural episode of Shadow of the Valley, the show that tracks the troubling trends of technology today through contemplative conversations with actors of conscience. I'm your host, Tal Leeds, your guide to the digital darkness we dare not speak. Join me as we plumb the depths and seek the roots of post-human dilemmas. Together we'll explore key concepts and seek clear insight as we cut through the distractions and find solutions to some of our toughest challenges. Our very first guest is Anne Boysen. Anne is a futurist at After the Millennials, her consultancy where she helps companies plan for the generational shifts in Generation Z and beyond. Somebody just sits up there and says, hey, oh, kids, kids nowadays don't care about privacy. Uh-huh. And it's absolutely hogwash. It's uh-huh. not true at all. Now, here's, here's where, and this goes back to this um, cyclical view of history again. We'll set the tone for this series by exploring a wide array of future trends in a conversation that covers education, automation, privacy, and much more. We'll also get some insight into the tools she uses to make her predictions and learn the surprising patterns that give her hope amidst the darkness. It's time to step into the dark, so let's begin. Thanks for joining us on this inaugural episode of Shadow of the Valley. As you've probably gathered by now, the tone of the show is going to be critical if not skeptical of digital technology, and it's not without good reason. Between the unfolding narrative of Russian meddling during the 2016 election, the scourge of fake news, and the Facebook-Cambridge Analytica fiasco, this negative press is hardly undeserved. The fallout is hard to ignore. Trust in social media is on the serious decline. And it hardly ends there. A global group of artificial intelligence experts released a report warning of the dangers of malicious use of AI by rogue states, criminals, and terrorists. The ultra-conservative RAND Corporation has just warned that vast amounts of personal data collected on the internet has made cognitive security, active defense against psychological manipulation, a new priority for national security. The irony of these developments is that the very technologies at the center of these controversies were originally presented to us with an air of utopian techno-solutionism. With their roots in the idealism of 1960s American counterculture, it was easy to believe in the revolutionary potential of a digital global village. In the 2000s, we saw it swing elections and spark protest movements like Occupy and the Arab Spring. But things have changed a lot since then, and quickly. These now ubiquitous technologies have begun to upend our faith in institutions, governments, religions, and even our own humanity. I'd like to think that the changes have something to do with the influx of corporate cash into the web, but I'm not entirely sure that covers it. Sure, that would explain why social media platforms and web searches are all monetized and designed to be as compulsive as slot machines, or why Facebook manipulates our emotions to maximize time on their platform. But we still have to contend with problems like conspiracy theories, fake news, and cyber warfare that existed before that monetization was so rampant. In fact, one could argue that those things might be intrinsic to the free and open internet. At this very moment, our lives appear to be unmanageable without things like smartphones and social media. 
The vast, unsettling consequences and challenges presented by them continue to pile up. People's responses vary from total despair and existential depression to cynical opportunism to optimism and hope. This isn't the first time humanity has faced such a crisis with media technologies either. We've seen the dark sides of radio and television throughout the 20th century, which played major roles in the wars and panics that broke out. Personally, I've always mixed my optimism with a healthy dose of skepticism. I find technology fascinating and many of its potentials liberating, yet I'm not ready to accept techno-solutionism. For example, I delayed getting a smartphone for a long time. I rarely upgrade to the latest gadgets. I still prefer reading print books over ebooks or reading off of screens. I still write longhand and prefer in-person collaboration and conversation instead of video chat. But I'm not a Luddite. Obviously, I use technology to make this podcast and share it with you. But as a writer, it is my job to make sense of it all so I can present it to my readers in an engaging, coherent way. And to do that, I'm going to need some help. So I'm reaching out to some of the smartest people I know situated at the intersections of these topics. Art, design, engineering, technology, society. And I'm asking them how they see the world today and where it might be going. Ultimately, I'm like you. I want to figure out where the light is at the end of the tunnel and how we get there. And the people I'm speaking to are all working towards the same ends in their unique ways. So now a little bit about the name of this project, which is Shadow of the Valley. The valley here means Silicon Valley, but the name also refers to a line out of Psalm 23, which reads, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, I get it that it's kind of unhip to make a biblical reference in this day and age, but given the potentially apocalyptic state of affairs, I thought it could be apt. Winston Churchill once said, when you're going through hell, keep going. That's the theme of this series. We're going through a tough time. It's scary. And I don't want to make any bones about that. But what I do want to do is come to terms with the terrain together and find things that we'll need to make it to the other side. Thanks for joining me as I embark on this mission. I hope that by having these tough conversations, we can eventually arrive at the viable solutions that will help us back to a better world. Our guest today is Anne Boyson. Anne's work is concerned with the many challenges her own children will be facing in the years to come. She's taken it upon herself to learn as much as she can about these issues and helps her government and industry clients prepare for what's ahead. Those clients include the Norwegian Department of Agriculture, Nestle USA, American Heart Association, Grupo Nutresa, K-Love Radio, and many more. This conversation explored several topics by design, education, automation, privacy, environment, genetics, corporate monopolies, and more. I hope this will introduce you to some of the trends you didn't know about and get reacquainted with some that you do. I should note that this episode was recorded back in December 2017 and 
In light of the ongoing Facebook scandals, some of the comments made here may sound slightly dated. This goes to show you how quickly everything is changing. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Anne. Anne, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so Anne, I just want to dive in um, right into your work with millennials. Um, we hear a lot today about them. Uh, we know that they're taking over the boomer generation as the biggest generational demographic in the United States. Uh, they also face some of the most daunting issues of any of the generations alive today. Uh, but interestingly, while most of the people are focused on ge that generation, you're already a few steps ahead um, thinking about the generations that come after. So I'm curious, why did you decide to study those generations and why should we start thinking about them now? Well, <clears throat> when I decided to, I, I actually didn't make a um, explicit decision to study generational research when I first started working as a futurist and sort of future market-oriented researcher. It sort of became, uh, I guess it was spawned out of both a personal and a professional need to, to map out that generation. Uh, first of all, I, I, I had my own children born into the post-millennial generation. I was gravely concerned about their future. Mm -hmm. So that gave me the, the, the constant impetus to, to and, and the constant curiosity of trying to figure out sort of what, what, what is in store for them. Mm -hmm. uh, it was also, uh, you know, years ago, we heard a lot about millennials and uh, much of the narratives around childhood about 15 years ago was shaped around the, the childhood experiences of the millennial generation, which seemed possibly a little bit anachronistic to me, given that they were, they experienced their childhood in the, in the 80s and the 90s which in many ways were the roaring 80s and 90s. Hmm. Uh, post, uh, post the millennial shift, to put it that way, um, we had 9-11, later we had the financial uh, a, a crisis and uh, you know, subprime crisis. Um, a lot of, we started seeing how mother nature started, you know, gave us a vengeance for all, the way we had mistreated her for a long time mm -hmm. uh, with hurricanes and tsunamis. It became very clear to me that the world had shifted quite a bit. And to understand how childhood is shaped uh, by, by the, the, the sort of the, the big macro trends in their environment, in their formative experiences, we could not any longer focus entirely on the, the childhood of the millennials. We had to sort of shift mm -hmm. our focus, move it further up the, further up the stream. And, and so that's how I became interested. And I just, I've just kept going at it and uh, um, adding a sort of a, uh, I guess, a cross-disciplinarian way of trying to understand them. Uh, and so, yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. Uh, you use this term, the, the booming 80s and 90s, uh, or, or, <laughs> the roaring 80s and 90s, kind of like a, a throwback to the, the roaring 20s. Right. Um, so it's an interesting choice of words. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Well, obviously there were issues in the 80s and the 90s, but there was the, there tended to be an underlying sentiment that we are moving forward. <laughs> uh -huh. we're, uh, we're, we're on a sort of a developmental track upward. Yeah, Which that L-shaped curve. Yes, 
And, and in many ways, I think there was a sense of plateauing, if not even reaching a sense of crisis in many cases, uh-huh. as we uh, entered into the mid-2000s. I think there was a, a, a shift in the sentiment where, for example, people after the financial crisis, uh, many people in the younger generation stopped believing in the American dream uh-huh. and believing in uh, continued progress, economic progress. There are a lot of similarities between uh, the sentiments that people have, uh, that, that have shaped people's experiences of their, their environment in the 2000s and mm-hmm. the 2010s as they were in the 30s, actually. And uh, so right after the uh, Great Depression, albeit for most people, that the, the people who grew up at that time, it was much graver circumstances than what most people are have experienced after the Great Recession, but there are a lot of similarities, and we're starting to see some similarities in the generations between the the young people who are growing up now and their grandparents who were growing up in 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 the 30s and the 40s. Uh huh. Yeah. And that's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, hmm. Okay. And does that have to do with? Um, do you think that purely has to do with economics, or do, does um, say network technology have a role to play in that? Um, in that, I guess that idea of of, of roaring, right? Because like there's there's all this. There, I'm thinking of like the dot com boom, right? Or the um, you know the ad, the kind of expansion of cable television in the '80s, um, those kinds of things, where like people's worldview suddenly were like very very open and and there was a lot of new information coming through and there's a lot new opportunity in terms of international relationships especially after the fall of the berlin wall um is that something that you look at or is it purely on an economic basis that i think i think there's some many factors playing together definitely uh, economics have a very strong influence there the way people feel if if you get the sense that uh, we're on a trajectory, an upward trajectory, and that uh, the only an anomaly would, or it would be an anomalous situation if the if the growth is not continuing, right? Well, I think that has shifted, uh, where the younger generations today have this a priori con- uh, pr- presumption that you can't trust that economic growth. Is going to continue. For example, look at this Bitcoin craze at the moment. A lot of that is embedded in, in a distrust in the in the traditional institutions. Not so much because Bitcoin itself has any tangible value. We don't know what that value is. We don't know what it's pegged against. You know, you used to have uh, traditional currencies and fiat currencies are uh, you know somehow uh, connected to the it used to be connected to the to the gold standard, and now right. it's more like it's pegged against other currencies. And there's there's some sort of underlying consensus about what something is worth. Right. And it seems like we're kind of, in many ways, off the hinge now. Is like people don't have a whole lot of trust in the uh, existing institutions. And that's yeah. becoming the opus, well, the, the normal, the mm-hmm. new normal. Exactly. And, and I mean, uh, so much of the, of the dialogue of what I'm hearing when people are talking about Bitcoin is, uh, is about trust. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it even kind of emerges out of... Um, uh, Occupy Wall Street, mm-hmm. right? It was kind of like an offshoot of that. Like people were very upset yeah. with what had happened uh, in the in the bailout uh, in two thousand eight, and um, you know, 
after after kind of Occupy Wall Street, you know, dissolved, there were still this sort of, you know, Bitcoin kind of came out of that. It's like, okay, well, we don't trust we don't trust these banks to do things the way that, you know, to do things fairly. So we're going to, uh, you know, create this technology that's sort of going to externalize trust. So it's not in any single human's hand. It's it's just uh, it's it's like trust is is guaranteed by mathematics. And so we're going to go that route. And, and it's almost like, um, you know how like, you know, different, different stock indexes are kind of like uh, indicators of, of, of how different industries are doing. So this becomes sort of like a, uh, an indicator of how much people trust the government. And so like, in a sense, like this boom yeah. is almost like an indicator of how little people are trusting it right now. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting. So, okay. So that's, so the, those are some of the factors that, that kind of, go into this. And that's, that's actually really great because that's a lot of what we're trying to talk about here is um, that shift, you know, like the, the, the shift that um, the millennials kind of grew into and that these other generations are, go- are kind of like the, you know, there's, there's almost like a before and after, right, yeah, because yeah. of that. True. Interesting. So um, uh, I, I was looking through your work, and I noticed uh, you mentioned uh, Strauss and Howe, who are mm. the authors of a book called Generations. Mm. Um, I was wondering how that their philosophy ties into your book, because a lot of a lot of uh, you know important big names uh, uh, draw from them, and mm. um, and and they're very much you know uh, they're they're very much a part of. Um, some 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 good thinking on on how to how to look at generations, how to think about those patterns, mm. and so on and so forth. Um, so, wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about them, uh, can maybe fill in the audience a little bit for the, those that don't know uh, what they're about and and how it influences your work, how you take what they did and apply it to your speculations. So, William Strauss and Neil Howe wrote two big pieces of work. So one was uh, Generations and the other one was called The Fourth Turning. Mm-hmm. Now Generations uh, was the book that described how they perceive the, the, the shift of different generations since for the past you know, 200, 500 years now, maybe not that much, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so they went through each generation of about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and put them in the context of uh, historical events that happened at the time that they were living. And then they noticed that there were generational archetypes that tended to repeat themselves over about a cycle of 80 years or so. And then so we'd have this typical, what we call an S-curve shape, where you have one generation that is part of so the, uh, a growth curve, and then it plateaus, and then you have an unraveling phase, and then at the end of it, you have this crisis. And the crisis is when the society redefines itself and comes up with maybe a new paradigm, a new, a new, a new industrial paradigm or a new economic paradigm. Um, and it's been a very interesting piece of work. Uh, they followed up with that a few years later with the fourth turning, which... Uh, describe these phases uh, as historical turnings and that they lasted for about 20 years each and you had four different turnings and then you would have the repetition of the fourth turning. So the fourth turning is about this crisis era which we are presumably in at the moment. So that's uh, that's how I make this uh, or that, that's why I find this analogy to the uh, the 30s 
very interesting. It's quite interesting to think of the fact that the Lehman Brothers collapsed almost about 79 years. It was about 79 years since uh, Black Monday. Uh-huh. Is it Black Monday? Uh, Black, yeah. Yeah, um, so Black, I was thinking Black Friday. That's a different thing. Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. No. Sometimes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Black Monday, the the crash. Uh, yes. The 1929 crash. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Uh -huh. So yeah. so it's interesting to 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 kind of keep that in mind, and and it's interesting to use the previous experiences, what happened back then, as if possible, a precursor of what could what what could happen uh, to this youngest generation now at least that was what informed me when i became interested in in this generation mm -hmm. and looking at change from the lens of the youngest generation interesting and uh yeah and so that's how we kind of see so, sort of some of these repetitions now i want to say one thing is that there are some deficiencies with this theory and i mm -hmm. think that the uh, authors would have agreed uh, that it's you don't have enough empirical observations, obviously, from hundreds of years ago to be able to make a general generalizable theory, um, and that's you know obviously we didn't have the data back then. Now we do have a lot of data. Now we have these. Uh, if we use different statistical approaches and quantitative statistics, we can actually. Uh, take observations uh, from people growing up uh, in different life phases, at least for the past 50 years or so, where we've had systematic, uh, you know, collections of uh, psychometric data and yeah. um, uh, demographic data. So, and, and it's interesting to kind of see that we are starting to, what was once a hypothesis, for me anyway, back in the early 2000s, you know, it's very difficult to do a lot of research on children uh, because there's a lot of red tape and you really shouldn't you don't do opinion service and stuff like that with them now as they're becoming older they are being subjected to those same surveys uh -huh. as we are <laughs> uh -huh. and it is interesting to see that a lot of those um, presumptions that I had anyway are actually coming to fruition interesting mm. so you do a lot of work with um, with uh, different generations uh, and you, particularly after uh, the millennial generation. Um, but we don't hear, we don't really like have a name for those yet. We don't really have an idea of who those are, at least for the most part, like the general public's not, not really talking about that quite yet. Um, so I was wondering if you can kind of take us through, you know, give us a bit of an introduction to them, uh, what they're like, what, what is unique about them, and uh, maybe a couple, of, uh, a couple of different trends that are important, that are maybe central to um, to, to who they are and what, how they identify and how they will probably be growing up in the world. It seems like society has sort of agreed on this consensus that, or has agreed on this idea that 1995 is the cutoff point. That's okay. people born after 1995. And we're starting to see some research that, that uh, compare people born after 1995 with people born, you know, like maybe from 1980 and up to 1995. And we do some see some differences uh, that are most likely generational and not just the age difference. For example, uh, this younger generation tends to uh, be a little bit more cynical. Mm. And I think it has to do with growing up in this 
uneasy time. Yeah. And yeah, you know, growing up with the aftermath of the recession, they're becoming uh, quite good at saving their money. They're not about running out and spending it. They're not spendthrifts. Right. So one of the one of the ways that you can see that one of the signs is like if you go about 15, 20 years back, it was quite common for people to wear these brand names, you know. Right. Yeah. And then you don't see kids doing that anymore. They they go mm. thrift shopping and they will actually brag about getting a good deal. <laughs> yeah. They love it. They they <laughs> love the fact that they can be frugal and it's not seen that they're not a cheapskate anymore. Uh-huh. So that that's very interesting to kind of see their Like cheapskate's not a bad thing to them. Exactly. It's uh-huh. not being bad. I mean, yeah, you you don't want to you don't want to be a free rider on your friends obviously, but you know, it's it's yeah. not about, you know, potluck is fine, you know, nobody expects the host to 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 stand for everything. Yeah. You don't need to have these glamorous parties everywhere. Yeah. Uh, for a while, I remember when these kids were younger. There was there were a few years where some would actually forego their birthday parties or birthday gifts hmm. and have a party, and then they would collect money for maybe a cost that they cared about. Uh, really. My own daughter did that one time. She did. Oh, wow. She collected for save save the children. And, uh, and there was quite, yeah, there's a lot of people who did that for a while, especially after the recession. We had this uh-huh. uh, renewed sense that not everybody's getting ahead in life. Right, yeah, you know? yeah. And, and they grew up with that. They, they're growing up, but they've seen, you know, uh, families having to foreclose on their homes. They've seen some people's parents losing their jobs. Um, again, it's this distrust in the institutions around them. So they are trying to build their own sense of meaning and, and um, economic well-being. Right. Which brings me to maybe that what we're kind of waiting to see now is they're becoming college age right. ready. And the big, obviously the big dilemma here is that while continuing being this very well-informed generation, uh, you know, I think millennials were the most educated generation so far, and obviously, they're on that track to bring the knowledge revolution one step higher. It seems like yeah. each generation after the other has done that. There's been some shifts, though. Uh, first of all, this enormous tuition hike that yeah. has, you know, they've seen their it's own. Been a, yeah, it's been a big problem. It, it really has. And, and they know that they might not be able to pay back that student loan, especially knowing that possibly as many as 50, 50% of all jobs might be automated you know cognitive jobs not just right. you know robotic jobs but but jobs right i mean that... they're talking about like lawyers losing their jobs and exactly stuff. yeah so why in the world will you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars preparing yourself for a future where you don't even know if you're going to have a job right so they are coming up with disruptive ways of thinking about education this uh-huh. is what i expect we're going to see more of Mm, uh, now okay. here's the other thing too, though is uh, element that is there is an opportunity in this scenario is that they do actually have access to a lot of information. If you would think of knowledge accumulation as you know having access to information, yeah, nobody has had more access to information than they had. <laughs> you know, I have MOOCs, these massive online courses. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you find that they, they take advantage of those? or That's the big question. Yeah. I, I'm not sure, actually. I don't... I've, I've seen a little bit of... Um, I, I've seen studies showing both 
there are some studies that indicate that. And, and just for the for everyone else, MOOCs are multi uh, massive. Massively massive online course. online courses, yeah. right? Free free courses that you can take online, uh, in the comfort of your own home, and then you end taught up... by real professors at yeah at you know real uh, sometimes very prominent uh, universities made available online for anyone to to right. to watch. Yeah, mm -hmm. obviously you can't replicate the whole college college experience that uh, right. But um, but 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 they're looking for for other ways. They're looking for Ways to make it more affordable or to make it um, uh, more accessible to more people. So that's that's what we're suspecting. Uh, we're starting to see some studies coming out indicating that these younger generation are, are putting less of their faith in, in a higher education. Some of them planning to forego it completely uh -huh. or asking their, uh, their employers to pay for them. Some of them want to go the route of entrepreneurship. Um, I did a survey um, even for undergrad to, to do that. Yeah, that's the question uh, because um, these these are these were younger people who were considering for a good college, not yeah. just not just grad school college yeah. or yeah. or professional studies. So so it will be you know one thing is what you answer in a survey. What you actually end up doing might be something different. Mm -hmm. I've done uh, some research myself where. I didn't find as much of a generational difference as a pre-college versus post-college experience. And hmm. so while I noticed people, the, the generation that was young enough to not have been in college yet, they had a much more higher hopes to what college can do for them than the people coming out of college. And the further away you were from the college experience, the less faith you kind of had in your own college experience. Now, uh -huh. what was interesting is like if you... Uh, if you went another route, for example, a vocational training or some sort of, uh, you know, two-year degree with a very specific angle, yeah, they had faith in that. And they also had faith in uh, getting a higher uh, graduate degree or a professional degree. But the college itself, four-year college with no specific purpose, that's yeah. almost, that's dying. It's It, it can't be justified anymore financially. For Interesting. Yeah. Um... Well, okay, so that's interesting because I, one, it sounds like you're saying that they're that they're they, they want the education to be more pointed, yeah, um, and help them help make sure that they get right to to work, right. Um, okay, interesting, yeah, because I I personally would have some some concerns about that, uh, especially when you know we're. You know, I've had jobs <laughs> where that didn't exist, like when I was in in just in college. You know, mm. and um, we're seeing a lot. You know, a lot of people are saying that the future of work, they're going to be jobs that nobody knows how to do right now. So if you're training for a specific job, there could be a mm. potential dilemma there when it doesn't show up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that I, is a concern. I think I think what you were probably going to see more of is. Uh, we will have this sort of um, hodgepodge or multidisciplinary approach, these sort of unique approaches to becoming career ready, but it will it will it won't be directionless. There will be, for example, let's say a young person who might take a gap year. I don't know. They they, they might go to somewhere a part of the world where you might need to. 
uh, work on water water sanitation or something okay, okay? And, and and then and then and so they then they might then have this vision of going into their educating educating themselves not with this particular title in mind yeah but more okay I, this is what i want to do so more process oriented so you, or i mean it's Goal oriented, right? Opposite, opposite of process oriented, is it goal oriented? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you, you you want to do that thing. You want to be the one person who works with this uh-huh. or that because you envisioned it. You envisioned that this is this is something that is going to be needed. So this is I, they they felt it themselves. They saw it. They read about it. They uh-huh. so, you know. So they got this idea that there are there are problems in that white space that has yeah. not been defined yet. Yeah. And that they can be part of the solution of defining it, but that that is not being addressed yet in what they feel is an ossified system, uh-huh. which is like you you take you know for your liberal arts degree, yeah, and but it's it's not pointed. So for right. them, it's more like okay, I want to build this skill set, and I want to combine it with that skill set, uh-huh. and that skill set, and then I'm going to define myself as somebody who does that. So they're looking at skill sets. Yes, that's that's the. Uh, Practical skills. Practical skills, I would say, is in vogue right now. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. I think it's a sense that the proposition of going to college and getting a, a degree in something that is not pointed has has it's scary. It's, yeah. I, I, and again, what I see in my data is that before they start college, they're very much they're very open to. The idea of going to college to have that college experience to build that sort of that fuzzy knowledge, building yeah. up that, that which is not defined. They're very yeah. positive about that. However, after the college experience, what I see in the data from the people who have graduated already, yeah, they have less faith in it. So uh-huh. it really it does that transcend does that experience from those who have accrued a large student loans. And are being underemployed and are now put in a financial situation where it's very difficult to figure out what they're going to do, how they're going to manage their, their finances. Yeah. I think if that experience goes down to these younger people who are in that position of, of, of having to make a choice, yeah. I think you, you're going to say, I mean, most people are going to continue to do college, don't get me wrong, but right. we're going to start to see more people redefining that experience and redefining redefining what career development really is and what it's okay. about. I think that's what we'll see. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, by the way, did you did you have a name for um, this generation? Is there is there one that has been decided on yet? Is it still mm-hmm. emerging? They still not know? Um, so they've been called Generation Z. Okay. Um, personally, I'm not big on that. I have, I've never tried to be one of those who want to give them a name. I think we can find that out in the future. I'm perfectly yeah. happy just calling them Generation Z. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and with within, I, I guess since we're still on this topic, um, what's one of the what's one of the trends uh, that you think is most underestimated uh, with these new generations, like? What's something that is maybe kind of flying under the radar that people aren't really... You mentioned a few already, but like, which one would you say is maybe the most um, overlooked? I think we are... I think the big elephant in the room is called 
privacy and cybersecurity. Uh huh. Yeah. Because here's the thing: there are many different anecdotal uh, signs that they are actually going to turn out to be the most liter literate when it comes to privacy and cybersecurity. Mm. Even though. As of today, we tend to think of kids as, ah, privacy, privacy is dead. Nobody cares about this anymore. Look at how they're on social media all the time. Uh -huh. I can't count how many articles in tech magazines or panel discussions at, at tech conferences. Oh, yeah, that... it's, like a, it's like a foregone conclusion. Yeah. yeah and somebody just sits up there and says, hey, oh, kids, kids nowadays don't care about privacy. Uh-huh. And it's absolutely hogwash. It's uh -huh. not true at all. Now, here's here's where, and this goes back to this um, cyclical view of history again. Right, yeah. If we tend to think that everything is in a linear track, yeah, sure. I mean, we've been going that way for a very long time. Uh -huh. We've been, we're being these frogs boiling in water. Right. Thinking that, you know, privacy doesn't matter. Privacy doesn't matter. Like, I can get that convenience. I can get that convenience. I can, I can get Alexa. I can get, you know. I, I don't have to move anymore. I can just sit in my lazy boy and, and use my remote control or talk to Alexa. I don't have to do anything anymore. Right. But there is this colossal unaddressed problem and it's privacy yeah. and it's cybersecurity. And we're, we're, we're headed towards a potential, you know, um, crisis, yeah. a dystopia. Yeah. Where, <laughs> you, know, you, either, you either don't own your own data anymore or somebody hacks into your data. Mm -hmm. just for the sake of not getting out of your lazy boy. I mean, yeah. I, I think I think it's a, it's a very reductionist view of human nature, for one thing. Uh -huh. I also think it's very important to remember that there's no other generation who has been publicly humiliated by Nana having your most embarrassing pictures put up on Facebook when, you know, when you're trying to get out in the dating game and there's right. that picture Nana right. put out there, you know? Yeah, I mean, as a millennial, like I remember when when our you know when your dad finally gets a Facebook. Yeah. And and he's like annoying you all the time. That's when like Facebook got uncool, and yeah. it was uncool because it was no longer that it was no longer a private space where yeah you could just be with your friends and no one would see it. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, you know, these younger kids have moved on to things like Snapchat or mm -hmm. you know things like that. Uh, yeah. I, don't even, I don't even know sometimes what they're what they're working on. Yeah, no, um, that, but privacy is one of those variables that that show up as 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 a decision for shifting network. Like one of the yeah. reasons that kids. I don't... mean, I was gonna say, like, is that is that the reason that they yeah. do that? Yeah, is that oh, in absolutely. your interpretation? It's like, oh well, they just here's somewhere where I can go where these older people don't understand it, so I have this sort of like buffer between yes. me and them. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. And you see them also actually Because because I, I was I want to I want to I want to add one aspect of that too because oftentimes I I hear that that's being perceived as oh they're just fractionizing fract fractalizing these these uh, kids even more and that they're just getting more and more, you know, complex which may may I guess may be true but from what you're saying it's as a different a different uh, lens to that behavior, right? Where you know, every like they're saying, like even now, like if you're if you're born like three years apart, you're mm -hmm. you're probably on a different network than than you know those three years older than you or three years younger than you. Yeah. Um, but it seems like you're, you're saying like one of these major factors is just the desire to find some sort of privacy. Yeah, but you can also see it, for example, when their choice of different verticals for different purposes. So, for example, you know you have. Instagram and then you have a Finstagram 
So, you know, fake Instagram and real Instagram, you know? So, <laughs> right. And then you have different privacy filters right. based on, and it's right. very natural. I mean, obviously, you know. It's like they're using multiple uh, identities. Yeah. yeah. Which is very counter to what, say, like Mark Zuckerberg is trying to say. No, you have one identity. Right. And they're, and they're just sort of like, you know, screw yeah. that. That's when he, that's where he went so wrong. Like when he uh -huh. tried to, you know, it was one of those people who said privacy is dead. No. Nobody wanted to, but yeah, they, yeah. they, these, these kids did not want to buy into that. So oh, I think a it's one, a little yeah. bit of rebellion. And then another thing we have to think about too is the fact that they are based on their brain physiology alone. They're supposed to be risk, risk takers. Right. Yeah. And they're not, I mean, we are my generation and the generation above me, we are the biggest risk takers there are mm. this generation, these younger kids they're they're not taking a lot of risks when it comes well yeah obviously they are taking some risks in social media but nothing what we would have done yeah and 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 they're they're showing their risk averse behavior in in very many areas for example uh -huh. when it comes to alcohol smoking uh a sexual debut um you know teen pregnancies down juvenile delinquencies down you know see all of these trends sliding down yeah and part of it is obviously because they're they're happy sitting in their rooms with their screens <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. So, so that is part of so that's that. part of it yeah. yeah that is part of it but i mean i mean i i've you know i think we often underestimate kids right like yeah. we, we oh you know what do they know they don't really understand but they they absorb a lot you know they absorb a lot of like what's going on even if they don't understand it you know i oh, think yeah. i think they is it do you think that's fair to say that yeah. like they're they're just even if they don't like totally, they can't articulate, you know, what, what's going on and reflect on it deeply. They still kind of have, I don't know, this mush of emotions that they pick up yeah. from like their parents and from what's going on in the news and things like that. Yes. And I think we're, we'll see that, uh, shaping itself, uh, you know, the, those sentiments that are now starting to form, yeah. those, those opinions that are starting to form maybe somewhat fuzzy and wooly will take a shape as they grow older. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, something about being born into this very disruptive digital yeah. world and then taking that to next level. For example, we, just looking at data, for example, our private data. So if you think of it as the, the, uh, the con what you have on your turf, like if you think of having mining rights to, right. to watch you, to your land, yeah. I mean, if you, the way we are set up now is that you don't have mining right to your own data because right. Facebook has that and, right. and the, uh, the internet providers have it and Google has it. Right. So this generation. Because they give you those long, you know, end user agreements and no one reads and, yes. and you sign them all away just to be able to go on the site. Yeah. And so you can, you can imagine a scenario where we have this younger generation growing up realizing that what really has the value at the moment it's not this topsoil type of thing that you can do with social networks and things like that. Mm. It's all that data underneath the yeah. earth. Your so own that's data. Really, that's really interesting. So it sounds like what you're saying is that in, a, in certain ways, this new generation is, is almost deeper than the yeah. previous generations out of a sort of necessity. Yeah. And that they're, they're almost, um, it seems like what's driving their, their social movement is uh, almost restriction. Yeah. Uh, rather than uh, expansion and risk-taking. 
Yes, because you can look or at discipline, it. perhaps, rather than restriction. Absolutely, yeah, it's it's discipline. And again, we have to think of these waves. If you have had a generation that has been taking a lot of risks, if your parents' parents' generation were the risk takers, you're going to be the one that want to rein it in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So and 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 in the terms of uh, growing up in a digital um, time where what data is true value why in the world would you want to just give that up <laughs> right for grabs right they understand that just because you know if i search something online or if i if i buy something online that has value that yeah, has more yeah. value maybe than the thing i actually bought because amazon right right you know they're gonna go use that and make and make ads out of it and yeah and they know that amazon is going to take that data and they're going to use it to become even bigger than they are so this generation grows up with that as the the um, the understanding of where value is. Mm. So why in the world would they not try to capitalize on that for themselves? Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, good. That was a very good answer. So uh, you're looking at all these different possible futures. Uh, you know, uh, we mentioned some that are good, some that are not so good. Mm -hmm. um, I was uh, wondering. Which, uh, I was going to say which technology, but since we're talking about a lot of different things, mm -hmm. um, which, which kinds of outcomes give you, give you hope, what kind of trends, uh, especially within technology, mm -hmm. uh, give you, uh, make you hopeful for, for the future? Mm, a good question. Um, instead of pointing out one particular technology, the, I, I think that the uh, sort of the family of technologies that I'm that I peg most of my hope to. Anything that is happening within renewable energy, um, anything that can prepare us with water, access to water, which is going to be a huge problem in the future. Uh -huh. um, yeah, we didn't even cover that part, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's that, and I think very often we kind of, we meander into this, you know, very digital sort of interesting virtual reality, 3D, well, I mean, we, we, we go into this very digital world and forget that the real problem is actually out there in the real world. And this is what's happening at the moment. I mean, it's like what's happening in many parts of the world at the moment is completely unprepared for having a planet with possibly up to 11 million, billion people. Right. And here in the States, I mean, we're consuming each of us per capita will consuming the resources that takes five planets you know right. and i mean these other parts of the world are trying to get up to our standard of living it is an absolutely zero-sum game and the only way that is going to help that is using technology that is going to help us get energy without using fossil fuels um get um water and, and a third thing is uh in vitro meat Unless hmm. the planet decides to become vegetarian, we're <laughs> uh -huh. going to have to grow a lot of that meat in the lab because yeah. it's absolutely unsustainable. It's actually right. probably one of the industries that is the least. It's the most taxing. Yeah. 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 So, so that. But that's... then that presents a whole other different set of social issues, right? Um, whether or not people would be willing to eat that. Oh, and... they will. I'm sure. Yeah. Again, that's <laughs> yeah. a generational shift. I'm. I'm, sure. I'm pretty sure that. I mean, we just show, you know, some videos from a slaughterhouse. And then, <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. No. But I. I think. I think that. I think actually we're pretty adaptive as humans. 
I mean, we're we're talking about starting eating insects. So if your choice mm. is eating insects or eating meat that is grown in a lab, I don't know. And then we're starting yeah. to get really good meat substitutes. You know, they're really sure. Yeah, like the Impossible Burger, I think it's called. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating that because really what this is, these challenges are really about is they're 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 political. We tend to think uh -huh. of them as technological, but they're not. It's it's the political will and the stakeholders and the current industries the big industries the fossil fuel industry the meat industry which i find it what i think is encouraging is for example when tyson which has you know a, a huge market share of the meat market is redefining themselves as a protein company so uh -huh. the tyson <laughs> is a protein company and so they bought not this chicken protein protein right. yeah and they 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 bought um uh beyond uh, uh what is it called? Beyond Meat? I think there's yeah, a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so they bought this. And I think that's a really good sign because it means that they're on board with the changes. Uh -huh. So if we can get current industries to think new, I think that's where you really can leverage some, some shifts. And the same thing with the fossil fuel industry when they start to def define themselves as part of the solution and becoming part of the renewable energy solution instead of fighting them. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. I think Currently, politically, I don't know if we have the um, environment to do it, but I think that the, the long-term shift is going in that direction. Interesting. That gives me hope. Good. And um, so, on the other side of the coin, what I was going to say, what makes you skeptical? What are you skeptical of, uh, rather than what you know, what what negative outcomes? Because we talked about so, uh, several negative outcomes, so I won't. I don't have to go too deep into that. But if there is there any sort of perhaps uh, false hope that you think is maybe getting too much play that you're that you're perhaps a little bit uh, uh, skeptical of mm. well I well I see um, I think one of those problems that again might be going under the radar maybe not so much but um, I guess people are starting to wake up to this issue the uh, mega corporations that we're you know we, we're getting these uh, monopolists that are basically taking over everything because they're so efficient. So take Amazon. I mean, they're right. incredibly the, efficient. You know, the Amazon, I mean, Apple, yeah, um, this, Google, yeah, and they're very involved in the physical world. They're not just right. based on digital, but they're. I mean, they're directly affecting the the corner store. You know, they're directly right. affecting people who are. You know, I might have been running their own business for for a long time. Right. Well, like how many bookstores are left? You know, and how many? Yeah. Um, yeah, and and any and on the on the you know, on the flip side, how many small businesses can survive without being on Google? Yeah. 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 Okay, and um, <laughs> it's a good answer. There's there's obviously a lot of things. Uh, to cover here and I, I like that we we do we are covering a, a good a good swath of, of topics here mm -hmm. um, uh, I, you might have just answered this but I was gonna ask uh, which current technological development concerns you most I well obviously artificial intelligence um, now I like to see artificial intelligence in combination with who owns the data again I like I Maybe well, yeah, no, that's it's yeah. a it's a big issue. Um, Darren Lanier, uh, who is the mm -hmm. considered one of the godfathers of VR, yes. has publicly come out sort of saying that 
it, it he doesn't actually believe in artificial intelligence because it's actually based on the work of human beings that are mm -hmm. they're not are not getting paid for it. Mm. Um, is that the kind of thing you're talking about, mm -hmm. or is it? Yeah, yeah. So many of the um, a lot of the the neural networks, deep neural networks, you know, convolutional neural networks are extremely data hungry. It's like we're not going to have self-driving cars on the level, level four and level five unless we have tons and tons of data. Well, obviously they have the lighters and the sensors and everything, yeah. but again, you still, you still need, you know, an artificial intelligent unit that can really process tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of data. Right. And that's, and that's image-based data, you know, image-based yeah. data is a little bit different also than, for example, uh, what we call NLP, which is natural language processing, which I, you know, you have a word and that word means have so, so many meanings. Right. You look at, you know, a hazy day where a cat running into the street or something, you know, you really need tons and tons and tons and tons of data. For context. For context. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. there's, um, I've heard, I've heard this, this uh, example called the, the, the horn, the horn problem. So mm -hmm. when you're, when you're driving um, down the street and there's, there's uh, maybe a guy who's, who's double parked and they have their lights going, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it you, you, your tendency is, is to, is to want to honk, but you don't always necessarily honk because maybe, uh, maybe they're in there and they're waiting to like, I'll be out in one second or, uh, you know, or they're like asleep at the wheel and then you really do honk. Like you don't, you, that's something that they're saying that the AI has, has, is terrible at. Like they mm -hmm. don't know how to, they don't quite have the capacity to deal with those kinds of situations. Like they can do the long distance drives. Mm -hmm. They can do the, um, the maybe like really super short, uh, things, but everything in between yeah. can't handle. Yeah. And I think, I think that's where we're starting to see in the, the next level of artificial intelligence, which is so, it, one thing is having these uh, very sort of easy, simple classifier-based systems where basically indexing, you know, which answer comes next. You have a target, target function and you have a data set and then you have some mathematical probability tests that finds the best solution sure, for you yeah. and that's the traditional ai you know but then now we're moving into this you know this black box ai you know with many you know <laughs> right. many hidden layers and right sure but again i want then it creates other problems like who who's gonna how are people gonna get paid for that how are people gonna yeah you know, make a living off of producing that kind of data etc yeah yeah no sure last question mm -hmm. uh and thank you for sticking to this. this has been a really uh Great talk. Um, so we mentioned uh, AI. We mentioned um, issues in higher education and so on and so forth. Um, what I'm curious about is how you're taking these observations and uh, making changes to your own work and to your own um, uh, profession in response to what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's the first question. And then the follow-up is like, are you, how you're seeing that happen amongst your peers and who are also futurists? Um, it, it's, it's, um, it's humbling to put it that way. I mean, when a lot of things are happening at the same time, it's very humbling. Mm. Um, I think my, one of my, 
wake-up calls personally to really go deeper into the social part. I, I think a lot of sort of quasi-futurism is very focused on the technology itself and it kind of takes it out of context and you know you just see this shiny object and people talk about what that shiny object <laughs> right. can do and completely yeah. forgetting about the social environment. Right. Um, and I, I had a little bit of that sort of understanding that that might not be the solution about a year ago and early November, first week of November last year, I went to one of the biggest tech conferences in the world. It's called Web Summit and it's in beautiful Lisbon in, in Portugal. I can absolutely recommend it. What was interesting is like the the first two days of the conference, obviously we learned about all of these new fantastic technologies that are going to solve so many problems. And yeah. you know, it was fantastic. Um, you know, uh, robots and Hyperloop and yeah. And then on the third day, we woke up. <laughs> and, there were, <laughs> and there was a, plen a plenary session. We were 50,000 people in yeah. that crowd, you know, VCs and um, entrepreneurs and startup people, people with a very distinct idea about what the future is going to look like. And, and we have a panel talking, you know, ready to talk about this latest shift in America. Uh-huh. And... There was a, I don't remember his name, but it was like, um, he was, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but he was a journalist for The Guardian, and he said, now this election result uh -huh. is a very good reminder that we cannot forget the people. It's not enough, it doesn't matter that you have this fantastic technology, you know, maybe, you know, solar technology and battery technology, whatever you have, it doesn't matter if that laid off coal miner in West Virginia, if he doesn't feel part of that future, it's not gonna happen. Yeah. We, they have to be heard. And if we don't listen to them, Russia will, yeah. and Cambridge Analytica will, yeah. and they will give them a voice, yeah. and then they will help them win the election. So we have to be in tune with the people. And again, yeah. I think it goes back to uh, why I'm so motivated of studying this next generation, because I'm not that interested in technology. I'm yeah. interested in how people are using their technology and mm. what they make out of it. And that's really where you see the seeds of change, I believe, anyway. Well, Anne, I think that's a great place to leave off. Uh, a really good note to, to, to leave off on. I, it's such a great reminder um, mm -hmm. that at the end of the day, technology is about the people who use it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's about whether or not those people can see themselves as a part of it. I think that's, that's exactly. uh, an important message to get out there. So thank you very much for uh, joining us today. And um, that'll do it for this interview. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on this trip through the shadow of the valley. If you'd like to learn more about Anne or her work, please go to afterthemillennials.com. I want to extend my special thanks to Anne for sitting down with me for this interview, and to Matt Grubb and Cami Wilt, who so generously agreed to let me use their recording studio to produce this interview. Our theme music was generously provided by Bly, B-I-E-L-E. -E. You can find her at SoundCloud, or 
at sarahbly.com. That's Sarah with an H, B-L-Y dot com. Additional music was provided by Michael Garfield, host of Future Fossils podcast. You can also find him on Patreon and Bandcamp at michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Share it with any friends or family you may think may enjoy him. I've been your host, Tal Leeds, saying keep going. <laughs>